Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one of these on, on the floor around you somewhere. It's page 844 in this Bible, page 844. Happy football day, everybody. I see some jerseys in the room. I see some blue jerseys, and then I see some evil jerseys, but we're not going to talk about that. I think NFL Sunday should be a national holiday. Uh, it's uh, a great day for me. It's a day where I'll usually spend most of the day in the basement. My family says goodbye to me until about February uh, on Sundays. But hey, I've been a Colts fan since they moved here in 1984. Actually, my dad uh, applied for season tickets when they got here. There were 143,000 season ticket applications in 1984. My dad won season tickets, and he had season tickets from 84 up until about 93 or 94. And I went from the time I was was, uh, 13 when they started, 14 when they started here. Uh, That tells you how old I am. You can do the math. But uh, I went to every game until I went away to college, and then I went to about every other home game uh, while I was in college. So I suffered through some pretty lean years. We had the same seats. It was section 312, row M, seats 11 through 14. I still remember that. We went to the same place every week for uh, seven or eight years, and then many other games since then. We had some pretty lean years. So I really feel like the last 10, 12, 15 years of really good Colts football is really just evidence of God's grace and mercy in my life. I mean, it's just... (laughs) Because I had to suffer through all that losing. You know, last weekend, um, thanks to some dear friends, we had the chance to go to a Colts game, to the last preseason game in Lucas Oil Stadium. Uh, my uh, family and I got to go. We had great seats. Uh, of course, it's, a little, it's the fourth preseason game, so you don't get to see a lot of the starters. And people go, why would you go? It's a Thursday night. Uh, you know, you don't get to see any of the starters, really. But the cool thing about it is, is there are 70 or so people on each roster, and those last 20 or 30 are really playing for their professional lives, right? Uh, and so my girls had never seen a football game uh, live. My wife had never been to Lucas Oil Stadium, so it was a great experience to do that. But even more than that, we get in there and start hearing the stories of some of these guys that were maybe playing their last football ever, and you start thinking about what that means for them and what their life's going to be like. And I'd tell my wife some of these guys' stories, and she'd go, oh, I hope he makes it. Or she'd say, you know, somebody gets hurt, and she feels like her heart is just crushed for these guys whose career is over. I mean, think about this. This is their last job interview, and they're having it in front of 40,000 people. Can you imagine what it would be like if you went to a job interview and you walk in and you walk into a stadium with 40,000 people watching every answer to every question, uh, every piece of body language. I mean, think about that. Even today, on opening Sunday, there are going to be millions of people watching every game, and they're going to be criticizing, critiquing, uh, judging, cursing, right? Maybe some of you, uh, at every player, every coach's decision, every official. Many, many, many eyes are going to be on these men trying to make their living on the football field. Have you ever thought that people are watching you too? Like if you're a Christian, did you know that? That people are watching you. They're they're watching your life. They're watching for evidence of Christ in your life. Uh, They're they're looking for how uh, you're going to respond. Uh, They're watching the way you lead your family. They're watching the way you interact with your coworkers. They're watching what you say behind other people's backs. They're they're watching the language you use. They're watching and waiting for you to fail. They're waiting for you to mess up. They're waiting so that they can call you a hypocrite, just like all those other Christians. Now, I want to encourage you today, okay? I want to remind you not to give up. In fact, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12.1 says this, uh, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... 
Let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out with us, for us. Now, he says, the sin so easily entangles. Sin is deceitful. You know, one passage in scripture says that sin is crouching outside your door. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Don't be entangled by sin. Now, this verse and that whole setup is not meant to scare you. It's, it's not meant to make you feel like you have to be fake around people because here's what's going to happen. You hear that and you go, oh man, everybody's watching me. I guess I better put on my happy face. I guess I better fake it, right? Because people are watching me and they know that I'm a Christian. And so I better just smile through hard times. That's not what I'm saying because here's how that verse continues. Uh, verse two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand at the throne of God. You know, Jesus is our example in life. Because he finished the race, he is standing at the finish line, we look to him. Because he lived a perfect life on earth, we look to him. The Apostle John was one of the first men to start following Jesus. He was probably 15 or 16 years old. Uh, We think when Jesus came to him in the wilderness, he was probably a disciple of John the Baptist. But the apostle John was one of the first men. He followed him all the way to the cross and he gave his life sharing the gospel of Jesus for other people. He gives us a very simple reminder of how to know if we're running the right race. In 1 John 2, 5, and 6, it says this. This is how we know we are in him. This is how we know we are in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You know, there are all kinds of people who call themselves Christian. They're all over the political spectrum. They take every position on every controversial issue. I don't know if you saw the video this week that BuzzFeed put out called I'm a Christian But. And there's all these people that that claim Christianity but don't necessarily hold to Christ, right? But Scripture tells us this is how your faith is proved genuine. John says we must walk as Jesus walked. He holds up the earthly life of Jesus as a guide, as someone to be imitated. Jesus is to be imitated at school and imitated in our marriage, imitated in our workplace. And when we experience conflicts or challenges in life, we are to imitate Jesus. We are to walk as Jesus did. As followers of Jesus, we are commanded. It's a command. We are commanded to walk as Jesus walked. We are to follow the very pattern of his life. Now, maybe you hear that and you think, how can I walk as Jesus walked? He was God. And I think that's a great question, and it's a very common question. And it really gets to the heart of what we're going to talk about over the next eight weeks. See, as we read Scripture, we see Jesus in three forms. We see the Christ. There are actually more than that. But for most of eternity, Christ takes one of three forms. There's the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay, we see John uh, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. Right? He's talking about the pre-incarnate Christ. In him all things were created. Without him nothing has been created that's been created. So we know that Jesus was there with God. In the beginning, Christ was there. Excuse me. The pre-incarnate Christ, before he ever came to earth, Christ was around. He's eternal. He's always been. He's always been in relationship with Father. And then there's the incarnate Christ. This is the Jesus we know that walked around on the earth, that lived a life, the Jesus that was born of a virgin, uh, that, that lived a life 33, 34 years, we think, on earth, that gave us his example. And then there's the uh, glorified Christ. Right after Christ died, he rose from the dead. He walked around on earth for 40 days. He ascended into heaven, and today he sits at the right hand of God, He's the head of the church. He's interceding for you and me, or he's interceding for us on our behalf. That's the glorified Christ. He's there today. He's a real person. You can have a relationship with him now, the glorified Christ. We're never called to be like the pre-incarnate Christ. 
We're never commanded to be like the glorified Christ, but in Scripture, we are commanded time and time again, follow the pattern of my life, do as I did, walk as I've walked, like the incarnate Jesus did. We are supposed to live our lives like Jesus, the man who walked the earth. So two important things. As we go through this series, there are two important things that you need to know that you always need to remember. Number one is this. Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully God. As I begin to unfold for you who um, I've discovered over the past year who I think the real Jesus is, some of you are going to wonder if I believe that Jesus was fully God. So I just want to tell you up front, I do. Jesus was fully God. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Jesus clearly claimed to be equal with the Father. In John 10.30, he said, "I, uh, I and the Father are one. In John 14, 9, he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. The Apostle Paul uh, understood Jesus to be God in his letter to the Philippians. He wrote, your attitude should be the same as that as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, Jesus was in very nature, he was God. Uh, His letter to the church at Colossa uh, says it even more clearly, I think, Colossians 2, 9, 4, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Fully God. All the fullness of deity lived inside Jesus. If you believe scripture, and I do, Jesus was fully God. But here's where it gets interesting. In a phenomenon that theologians call, you don't have to remember this, but if you write it down, you can impress some friends, all right? In a phenomenon theologians call the hypostatic union, hypostatic union, isn't that a cool word? Use that at a cocktail party, you'll be, your friends will be impressed. While, while Jesus and all of scripture teaches us this, that, that fully God and fully man were united, that's the union, united in the person of Jesus, the hypostatic union. While Jesus in scripture teaches that it was fully God, it says he was also fully human. Jesus was fully human. The hypostatic union is the uniting of those two seemingly opposing characteristics in one person, in Jesus. Let me show you. Hebrews 2.17 says this, For this reason, he, he's talking about Jesus, he had to be made like them, like his brothers, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for sins of the people. See, if Jesus wasn't fully human, then his sacrifice didn't fully pay for our sins, right? So he had to be fully human. Study his life, and what you'll see about Jesus was he experienced emotions and sensations. He was conceived and born to an ordinary woman. Luke records how Jesus grew in wisdom and stature as he aged. He became hungry and thirsty. He got tired. He slept. He felt sorrow and grief. When a a close friend died, the apostle John says that Jesus wept. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. He was just like us. He became a real human being for us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now this should be encouragement for us today. Jesus was just like us. He faced trials and temptations. He got hungry and thirsty and tired and angry. Yet he never sinned. Why did he become fully human? Well, our salvation demanded it. Hebrews 2 said that. Jesus lived a perfect life with no sin so that he could atone for our sin. But here's what I want to challenge you with over the course of this series. We can praise him as our savior for the price he paid on the cross. And we should, absolutely, every day of our lives. We need to praise him for that. That's so important. Don't lose sight of that. But there's something else to gain too. 
See, we sometimes look to the message of Jesus for guidance. We see what he said, what the words he spoke during his life, and we look to him for guidance in that. We sometimes even look to his methods. How did Jesus teach? How did he live? How did he interact with people? But because he was flesh and blood, and because he walked the earth, we can look to him also as our model for life. As John says in 1 John 2, 6, we can walk as Jesus walked Now, that's a lot to think about. Jesus says, fully God and fully man. Now, I found that most of us do okay. If we're Christians, most of us do okay with the fully God part, right? We get that Jesus was God, um, but we don't quite get the fully human part. That's that's the part we have to be convinced of, right? Ironically, the disciples that walked with Jesus really knew the fully human part because they saw him every day. They saw how he lived his life. They saw, saw how he set his priorities, but they had to be convinced of fully God. And every time Jesus would say something about it, they were like, mind blown. They couldn't get their arms around it, right? And so for us, we get fully human or fully God, but we don't always get fully human. I don't, I don't think we really understand how that can work. Well, so look at it like it's two sides of the same coin. You know, I might, if I had a coin, I might show you uh, somebody that, that one side and say, hey, what's the picture on this coin? Well, it's a head. And I turn it around and say, what's the picture on, on this coin? And they say, well, it's an eagle. And they're both right, but they're looking at two sides of the same coin, right? Well, that's kind of how the hypostatic union works, although it's really, Scripture tells us, it's a profound mystery. And uh, so that Jesus could be fully God and fully man. But I don't think that means we don't try to understand the best we can. And so I want to, over the next few minutes, just take a glimpse at how this could work because it really sets the foundation for the rest of this series. And I think I want to start with the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.5. We'll go back to that. Philippians 2.5, Paul says, in your relationships with one another, so he's talking about relationships here, but he's going to set the tone for what Christ was like. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant made in human likeness. You know, your version, your translation, if you have a different one, may say he emptied himself. But he made himself nothing. Jesus became like one of us. He became fully human, but did so in a way that preserved his deity. Now, uh, theologians have been wrestling with this for 2,000 years and how this worked. But in the Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD, so I'm talking about more than 1,500 years ago, uh, these theologians struggled to articulate how this could work. And so after much study and discussion and prayer, they reached the conclusion conclusion of this. And this is what we're going to base this whole series on. That sometime in eternity past, pre-incarnate Christ, sometime in eternity past, Jesus decided that when he took on flesh, he would veil his deity to fully live out of his humanity. All right, so in other words, Jesus said sometime in eternity past, when I come to earth, when I take on flesh, I am going to veil my deity so I can fully live out of humanity. One theologian, uh, Ryrie, says it this way, never less than God, he chose to live his life never more than man. He became like us in every way, yet he did not sin. He did that so he could pay the full price for our sin, but he also did it so that he could understand. He could understand first person uh, what it was like to live as a human. He could show us how even with all the frailties of humanity, we could live the same life as Jesus. He became human for us so that we could walk as Jesus walked. That's why we're calling this series the Son of Man, by the way. 
You know, we think of Jesus a lot as the son of God. But the word that Jesus, the phrase that Jesus used for himself many, many times, and I think maybe 80 times in the New Testament was the son of man. 81 times. I've got it written right here. 81 times Jesus used the phrase, the son of man. And while the full meaning of it, you know, expresses uh, his wholeness, it really embraces his exalted role, but it, it focuses on his humanity, the son of man, as opposed to the son of God. He was one who born up a woman. He grew up with brothers and sisters in a real town with real people and really did some amazing things. And so over the next eight weeks, what we want to do is take a step back and look at the real Jesus. One thing I'm learning in my studies is that you can't understand, get to know the real Jesus until you understand both his deity and his humanity. And we spend a lot of time on his deity in here. As important as it is, what we want to do as we go through this series is we want to see him in his humanity too. So stay with us for eight weeks. Here's what we're going to see and discover about the real Jesus along the way. There are four points, four things I want to just bring to your attention this morning that really, like I said, sets the foundation. Number one is this. Jesus did not dip into his deity to live out his humanity. Okay, now wait a minute. Some of you think I'm getting into heresy here and... and uh, and a lot of people will tell you that the greatest heresy not, comes from not understanding this hypostatic union, how these two things work together. But, but Hebrews 2 says, Jesus was made to be like us in every way. That means he couldn't express his deity on earth, right? Because if he was like us in every way, that means that we could act as God. He, he wouldn't have been fully human. He would be superhuman. And I think that's maybe the biggest thing that we do in the American church today is we try to make Jesus some kind of superman. We try to make him superhuman, but he wasn't superhuman. He was fully human. I'm going to give you an illustration. I have in my wallet a credit card. And if I were to uh, go try to buy something today, uh, I I had two choices. I could pay uh, in cash, which I couldn't buy too much. I think I got $10 in there. Uh, Or I could pay with a credit card. I have access to a line of credit that I don't know is how many thousands of dollars on here, right? And so if I could go into a store and I see something I want and it's $20, I could either dip into my credit card to pay for it or I could pay cash for it. And I could choose if I go into a store and there's something that's $20 and I don't have enough cash, I could say, you know what? I can't afford that. I'm not going to buy it today. The reality is I have access to a big line of credit, right? But I can choose to live out of my wallet, out of my cash, and not use that. I like to see it as Jesus had the MasterCard, right, the God card. He had the God card. He had the ability to be God. But Jesus chose, while he lived on earth, never to use that credit card, never to dip into that credit line to live out his life. I can tell that some of you don't believe me. I want to give you some examples. I want you to think about this, okay? And this is the interactive part of the morning, all right? And so feel free to talk back to me here for a minute. Not yet. Okay, just a second. So, so uh, God, we're, we generally see God as having uh, three characteristics, the omnis we call them. You know, he's omniscient, he's uh, omnipotent, and omnipresent. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing, right? God is all-knowing. If Jesus is God, was Jesus all-knowing? Was he omniscient? Can, can anybody think of something Jesus didn't know? He didn't know when he'd come back, right? Anything, anybody think of anything else? Matthew 24, 36, by the way, says, but about that day, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the son. Jesus said, not even I know, but only the father. 
How about a time uh, when Jesus was going to go heal uh, Jairus' daughter and he's walking through this crowd of people and a woman reaches out and touches his cloak and Jesus turns around and what's he say? Who touched me, right? He didn't know. He didn't know who touched me. Luke 2.52 says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. If he grew in wisdom, how can you grow in wisdom if you already know everything, right? Jesus was not omniscient. The fact that he grew in wisdom and stature shows us that. It demonstrates that in his humanity, he didn't know all things automatically. He wasn't downloaded with all of godly information at his birth. He had to learn that just like we do. Uh, John 15, 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've been made known, I've been made known to you. It's just as you and I learned, Jesus learned about his father. He learned about his father's will through scripture and prayer and through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the, another one is omnipotent. Uh, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, right? God is all-powerful. He has all the power in the universe at his disposal. Was Jesus all-powerful? Be careful. Was Jesus omnipotent? Can, can anybody think of something Jesus couldn't do? Couldn't. Thank you, Lou. So Jesus is... Uh, walking around, he's teaching people, he's performing miracles, he goes back to his hometown in Nazareth. People go, can this really be the Messiah? This guy, isn't he the carpenter's son? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? Isn't he right here? And, and Jesus said in Mark 6, 5, it says, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them because of their lack of faith. There were things that we see in scripture that Jesus couldn't do. He didn't have the power to do. Uh, omnipresence, that's the third one. Omnipresence, God is everywhere at all times. Psalm 139 says, where can I go to escape from your presence? If I go up to the tops of the mountains, you're there. If I go to the depths of the valley, you're there. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He sees all things. It's true of God. Was Jesus omnipresent? Yeah, I think you should get the pattern by now. Was Jesus omnipresent? No. No, in his humanity, he was not. He could, he could only be one place at a time. When Jesus was teaching in one town, his close friend Lazarus passed away in another town. When he later arrived at Lazarus' home in Bethany, what did Lazarus' sister say to him? Do you remember? If you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus wasn't omnipresent. He, this is so important for us because it means that he had to make decisions. He had to have priorities. He had, to, he had a limited amount of time to use in his life, so he had to set his priorities very carefully so he could be where he needed to be. You probably don't know anybody like that, but I do. What about miracles, you might say? Aren't the miracles proof that Jesus was God? I can tell you that what Jesus said about that in John chapter 5. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do only a very few things by himself. Wait a minute, that's not what that says. The son can do nothing. He can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus himself said, I can't do anything without my father. He's relying on his father for these miracles. He's totally dependent on the father as the son of man. Jesus became the conduit. We talked about this if you were here uh, this spring for our Through the Lens series. Remember that? We talked about all these miracles in the book of John and, and Jesus was the conduit. For his father's power, with his life, Jesus modeled total dependence on his father. In everything he did, as he lived his life, he was always giving credit and glory to his father in heaven. Dan Spader, who's uh, an author, he's become a mentor of mine, of ours here at the church. He said this, Christ's miracles weren't proof of his deity 
Instead, they were proof that he was the Messiah. They were proof that he was the Messiah, that he was sent by God. His miracles are proof that Christ was sent from the Father. Jesus tells in his own word, he did nothing from his own power. Everything he did was because of the Father. Look, Elijah did miracles. Was Elijah God? What about Moses? Moses did a lot of miracles, right? Was Moses God? No, but he was sent by God, right? Even after uh, Jesus died, the, the disciples went and they did miracles too, but nobody argues that they're God. We just argue that they're idiots, right? Sometimes. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that Jesus didn't dip into his deity to live out his humanity? Because something else, number two, that we're going to see as we see the real Jesus is the resources available to Jesus are available to us too. (laughs) This is going to change your life, I'm telling you. This is going to change your life when you start looking at it like this. Even though Jesus never used his God card, he had access to some incredible resources. Uh, Do any of you have a neighbor that's like that Mr. Fix-It that has every tool ever invented in their garage. You have one of those guys. And so whenever anything breaks at your house and you need a, a muffler bearing or you need a you know, a three-quarter inch open-end socket, you, know, you can go over to your neighbor's garage and, oh yeah, I got one of those. It's in the third drawer down. And you can just go pick it out. And then you, you know one of those people? They have all those tools. And if you live next to them, that all those tools are available to you as well. They're at your disposal. But if you're not handy, if you're, you know, kind of like me and you can fix some things but not everything, uh, sometimes you want to go to your neighbor's garage and and say, uh, can I watch you fix this? Because if you watch your neighbor fix it, then the next time, if you just do what he did, then you can do it yourself, right? Well, in the same way, the Son of Man had access to some incredible resources. Guess what? Those same resources are available to you and me too. Resources like the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit saturated every aspect of Jesus' life. He was conceived by the Spirit. He was anointed by the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. He was saved by the Spirit or sealed by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He, w- he rejoiced in the Spirit. He performed miracles with the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was raised by the Spirit. And if you're a Christian, that same Spirit lives inside of you. We have access to the same Holy Spirit that Jesus, that raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, resources like prayer. Jesus relied on prayer. More than 40 times in scripture, we see Jesus praying. His ministry began after 40 days of praying and fasting in the wilderness. Uh, It was after a night of prayer that Jesus walked on water. It was after a night of prayer that he chose the 12 apostles. Uh, Prayer helped Jesus overcome temptation, discern his father's will, and figure out what were his next steps in life. We can pray the same way that Jesus prayed. We can pray before every major decision. We can pray at every hard part of our lives. We can uh, expect the same results. The word of God. Jesus had access to the written word of God. Over 90 times in the New Testament, we see Jesus quoting Old Testament scriptures. And like we said, he wasn't born with this information downloaded into him. We see Luke 2.52. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That he had to grow in wisdom. He had to read the scripture. Jesus, Jesus was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then he came to earth and he was born and he had to learn to read the word that he wrote. How crazy is that? But we have access to the same word of God. Jesus studied the scriptures. He used them in every life, everyday life situations and we can know and use the Bible like Jesus. Uh, relationships. Jesus had, uh, was intentional about building relationships. They were a big part of what it meant to be fully human. We can love people. We can grow in our faith. uh, We can walk as Jesus walked and love people. 
and, and one of the things that Jesus did most important in his life, I believe we'll see at the end of this eight weeks, was to make relationships with a few people. Those same resources and, and, and some others, they're all available to you and me. Why does that matter? Well, because, number three, Jesus is our model for life and ministry. Jesus is our model for life and ministry. <clears throat> I hope you don't think all of this talk of Jesus' humanity is lessening Jesus. Um, because people will say, well, you're, just, you're taking Jesus off a pedestal for me. You're, I want, <clears throat> but I want you to know what I've been reading and studying over the last year or so doesn't make me minimize him. It makes me worship him even more. I mean, this man who's just like me that uses all these resources and uses them, uses them to the max to enhance his relationship with God, to do amazing things for God. I mean, one author, Bruce Ware, says it this way, so many people minimize or demean the obedience of Christ by saying, of course he obeyed. He was God and God's nature was in him. He had no choice. Scripture does not let us draw this conclusion. It presents Christ as a man who faced every temptation and succeeded, not because he relied on his divine nature, but because he relied upon the word, prayer, and the spirit. And he succeeded all the way to the cross, even death on the cross. Wow. Doesn't that make you worship him even more? It makes him even more worthy of our worship. Now, here's the thing, and this is the biggest takeaway. Because he was fully human, because the same resources available to Jesus <clears throat> are available to you and me, because he's our model for life and ministry, that means number four, we underestimate what God wants to do in our lives. Over the last years, I've undergone this intentional study of the life and ministry of Jesus. The thing that God has repeatedly reminded me of is this. If it's true of Jesus, how much could he do in me? I mean, think about this. Jesus had three and a half, maybe four years in ministry. In that time, he made maybe 120 disciples. That's how many people were in the upper room in the book of Acts. After Jesus ascended into heaven, 120 people got together. Um, those were probably his, his disciples. And he did that in three and a half or four years. What a great ministry. The Apostle Paul had probably 30 years or so in ministry. In that 30 years, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He planted at least 14 churches that we know of, probably more. By God's grace, I'll have 40 years or more in ministry. Some of you are much younger than I am. How much more could God do in you and could God do in me? If we are obedient to him, if we make our priorities the same as Jesus, how much more? could God do in our lives? We underestimate what God wants to do in our life. John 14, 2, Jesus says, I very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. How's that for a legacy? How's that for a life of meaning and purpose? Just by walking as Jesus walked, by, by making your priorities the same as his priorities, you will do even greater things. That's not me saying that. That's Jesus saying that. You still have questions? Good. I hope you're wrestling with this. I hope you're joining a small group, and uh, we have groups that are starting this week, and there'll be uh, many of them will be coming right along with this study, and they'll be wrestling with this uh, at night too. Uh, I hope that over the next eight weeks, you'll stay with us as we unpack what were those priorities. So if Jesus had these priorities, what were they? We're going to talk about that starting next week, how they played out in Jesus' life and how we can use them to walk as Jesus walked. But what's the key? 
Let's go back to the first passage we read, very first thing, Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. That's the key. If we want to live that kind of life, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I am so thankful today uh, for the life you lived, the model you gave, for the life you gave up, Lord, that you didn't spare your son's life so that you could spare mine. (laughs) As that song says, uh, as the song we sang earlier said, what a savior, hallelujah, what a savior. What What a way to show your love for us, God, to send your son. To, to have him be born of a virgin, to have him live a perfect, sinless life that we could never live, but to be a model for us and to go to the cross to die a horrible death, a death that we deserved. God, we're so thankful for that. We're thankful that on the third day that you raised him up from the dead so that we can know that everything in our life is able to be overcome in you, through you, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. God, I thank you for that. I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.